I'm Brian Treadaway, the pastor at Vertical Church. It's our desire here to lift him up and live him out. We hope today's broadcast will inspire you to do the same. So enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. <clears throat> as, uh, as you've heard, Pastor Brian's not feeling well and asked me to speak this morning, but the good news for all y'all is that there's probably a high likelihood that you'll get to lunch early. So <laughs> stick with me and uh, we'll have a good time this morning. Well, I am beyond honored and blessed um, to be able to speak with my church family this morning. Uh, when Pastor Brian called, I was, first of all, shocked, um, but second of all, deeply honored and grateful for the opportunity to share. So this morning, what I want to talk about with all of us is I want to talk about big dreams. I want to talk about things that God does in our lives that blow us away, things that, like, well, this would be cool, but if we could do this, that would be amazing. And I want to define at the onset a little bit about what big dreams mean, because I think that that's really important. And I think a lot of times, if we're not careful, our big dreams are stuff for ourselves and not necessarily things that God wants for us. If I'm thinking about my own big dreams, it's that brand new Chevy Silverado that's the high country edition, that's pearl white, that's got tan leather interior, that's got all the bells and whistles and four wheel drive and all these things. But I would venture to say to us this morning, that's probably not quite a dream born in the heart of God for me. That's probably a dream born in the heart of Kyle for Kyle. And while goals are important, and I think that when we have things that we're striving for and things that we want, I think that's not a bad thing in itself, but what I'm asking us to challenge our thinking this morning is to think beyond ourselves to what big dreams are born in the heart of God for you and I. As we think about dreams, there's really, there's two different types of dreams, and we're going to put this on the, on the screen so you can see it. When I was studying, I was like, well, what, what breaks down dreams that are for men and dreams that are from God? And really, when you think about dreams that men have, men and women both, they're dreams that are usually for more power or for more prominence in society. Things like the corner office, things like the new car, things like the bigger house, things like more salary, more influence, more position. You know, if you're looking at a table, you want to move closer and closer and closer to that head of the table. Oftentimes, dreams that are for men are dreams for more power and more prominence in society. But God's dreams are a little bit different. When God puts dreams in the hearts of men and women, they're for greater intimacy with him and for greater impact for his kingdom. So those are the kinds of dreams that I want us to begin to expand our mind and think about this morning, is it's not dreams for more stuff. And I'm not saying right now in and of itself that stuff is bad. What I'm saying is that God has so much more for us than a new car. God has so much more for us than that corner office. God has so much more for us than the things that we limit ourselves to thinking. Because at the end of the day, all that stuff is going to be here one day and gone tomorrow, right? God's dreams, God's desires for us are for greater intimacy with him, first of all, and greater impact for his kingdom. So this morning, we're going to be talking about Nehemiah. We're going to be talking about uh, one of my favorite books of the Bible. We're going to talk about a story of somebody who dreamed a God-sized dream, not a man-sized dream, and who saw literally the impact of a nation changed because he was willing to listen and to be obedient to what God was saying and placing in his heart. I want to give some kind of overarching themes to the book of Nehemiah, and then we're going to dive into our passage today, which is in Nehemiah 2. But there's four main points, I guess, as well, if you will, for Nehemiah. And uh, I want to go over those for us real quick. First of all, the first, first main point is compassion is often the springboard of obedience to God's will. 
Compassion is oftentimes that thing that motivates us to do something. It's that thing that we feel empathetic towards someone's plight and we're compelled to do something about it. It's that thing where I have compassion towards my kids and I want to, to do what's best for them. It's I want to raise them up in a home that honors God. Compassion is that thing that springboards us from going to where I know what God wants me to do because I have compassion, I'm actually going to do it. Cooperation with, us, with others is required to carry out God's will. How many of you know in the audience that you cannot accomplish God's will in your life alone? God's made us on purpose to live in community, and that's community with him and with other believers. It is difficult, if not impossible, to do this thing that God's called us to do, this Christian life, this journey by ourselves. He's created us for community. He's created us for intimacy with him and to partner with other people to impact the kingdom. Confidence results from fervent prayer and exposition of the word of God, which reveals his will. When we're confident that we know what God's asked us to do, we know what it is that he's saying, nothing can stop us. That's that point where you look at a wall and says, there's no wall he won't break down, there's no lie he won't tear down. Confidence is that thing that when we look at a circumstance that seems impossible, we remember that nothing's impossible for God. Confidence of being able to hear what he's told us and then go out and do it makes us unstoppable. And finally, courage will manifest itself as sanctified tenacity in refusing to compromise on the conviction that one's doing God's will. When we know, we know. When you are confident, when you are convicted, when you are walking in boldness that you know what God's called you to do, there's nothing that can stop us. There's nothing that can slow us down. This is the kind of conviction that Nehemiah had when it came to rebuilding the wall. This is the kind of boldness that we need to seek for in our own lives to be able to walk in that kind of authority and that kind of a realization of what God has for us. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Nehemiah chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be at this morning. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. This is Nehemiah speaking. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Remember that, we're going to come back to that. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad, since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? The king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I'm going to stop right there just real quick. Oftentimes I think in Christian circles we think that God rewards the prayer of the most eloquence or God, God rewards or listens more to a prayer that uses fancy words or a prayer of a certain length or a prayer that meets these parameters. This scripture talks about literally he stopped mid-sentence, prayed, and then proceeded. It's not something that has this magic formula. It's not something that has to have this many syllables in order for it to count. God listens and responds to instantaneous, in-the-moment prayer. I think that if we could just incorporate that one premise into our lives, it would change the way we live. It would change the way we talk to that spouse we're having a difficult conversation with. It would change the way we talk to our kids when we're full of frustration and we don't know how to get through to them. It would change the way we talk to that boss who we feel like we can't relate to, who we feel like we don't know how to get through to them. If we would just incorporate stopping, 
praying instantaneously just in our minds and then proceeding to speak, I think it could change everything. That has nothing to do with my sermon, but that's a freebie. (laughs) So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, and the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him a time. I sent him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of God upon me. And I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And when Sanballat and the Hornite and Tobiah and the Amorite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Now it's important at this point to bring up something that one of my professors in Bible college drilled into my head over and over and over again. And even as I say it this morning, I can picture him saying it. And he would tell us that context is everything. He would tell us that context, what's going on around the verses, behind the scenes, the greater picture of what God's doing is critical if we're going to get the message of the text. So we're going to spend a couple of minutes talking about the context of this verse. He, one of the, his quote was that he would say is, a text without context is a pretext for anything. So a text without the larger context of what's going on really can be used to talk about whichever you want to talk about. So because we want to be faithful to the text this morning, we want to understand the context of Nehemiah, there's a few things that I want to highlight. Number one, this happened while the people of Israel were in Babylonian captivity. This was during the reign of King Artaxerxes, which was one of the largest empires that the world had ever known. The city of Jerusalem was in shambles. There was things that the walls had been torn down. It was not a good time for the people of God. Nehemiah, who this story is about, was in a position of official capacity with King Artaxerxes. He was the cupbearer for the king. And what that means is he really didn't have a very good job at all. His job was really terrible. On a good day, he got to sip a little bit of the wine before he handed it to the king. On a bad day, the arsenic that's in the wine kills him. That's his only job. If he's doing his job to the best expectation of the king, he dies and not the king. It's not a great job. But that was Nehemiah's job. He was not in the land that had been given to them by God. He was not in Jerusalem. He was some thousand miles away in Babylon as the cupbearer to the king. When Ezra and a group of of the Jews from Jerusalem traveled to Nehemiah to tell him of the condition of the walls, it was a thousand-mile journey. A thousand miles from point A to point B. And I think about a thousand miles in a car with my two kids, and that scares me. But this is not a car going a thousand miles. This is a camel going a thousand miles. This is not packing snacks and packing Gatorades and having an iPad and all these things that we think of today. This was a journey that took great effort and sacrifice and time. Just for Nehemiah to hear about the condition of Jerusalem was a big deal. It was a huge sacrifice for even that journey to have taken place. 
And uh, some of the scholars that I was reading about said that it took four months from when Nehemiah heard of the condition of the walls before he approached the king. Four months. Can you imagine maybe knowing that someone's pregnant and not saying anything for four months? Could you imagine knowing that something's going to happen and you have to have a difficult conversation and waiting four months to have that conversation? Could you imagine the pressure of knowing that your family traveled months and months and months to give you some news, and now it's all up to you, dude. You go talk to the king, and, and really the fate of Jerusalem is, in his, is on his shoulders. The last thing about the context is as the cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah was a servant to the king. He was not someone that would, could go before the king and say, hey, so this is what I'm feeling and this is what I'm thinking about and, and king, this is what I think you should do today. That's, that's not how it worked. He was in service to the king, which meant that his own needs, his own feelings and everything about himself was secondary to his job of being a cupbearer to the king. That's why in the text when it talks about that the king noticed his countenance is important because it would have been incredibly unprofessional and uncustomary for him to have any attitude other than a smile on his face in the presence of the king. They weren't to bother the king with any of their minuscule problems. Their sole purpose was for the king, to serve him. So just the fact that his countenance is different in the king's presence is already a red flag to the king. Like, what, is, what is going on? This is not normal. This is not customary. This is not your job. There would often be times where just because of that one thing, they would be kicked out of the presence of the king. And I think it's important so we understand the context of Nehemiah's request. It's not between two friends. It is in a role of a king and a servant. And it's not something that would have been customary in that capacity. And then I want to take a moment to really dive down into what Nehemiah was asking for. Having the benefit of history, we know how the story ends, and it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal because we know what's going to happen. But let's take a look at what it is that Nehemiah asks the king for. Biblical scholars have said that Nehemiah's first trip back to Jerusalem probably lasted for about 12 years. So imagine going to your boss tomorrow morning and say, boss, I would like a 12-year paid vacation, please. 12-year paid vacation, and also, can you send me as your representative so that everything that is yours, I have access to? What? <laughs> also, can you send people to protect me and send me in your name so when I go through these parts of the empire that would not be permissible for me to pass, they'll see me as representative of you and let me go? Because remember, we're talking about a long journey. We're talking about some 800 miles to get back from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is not like a walk in the park. This is not, can I go across town? This is going through hostile territory. This is going through a group of people that were not friendly towards Jerusalem. Can I go as your representative so that I can actually make it back to begin with? Oh, and by the way, you've already told somebody else no. So... Ezra has already talked to the king about rebuilding the walls and was told no. And now Nehemiah is going, he's asking for paid vacation. He's asking for resource and for sponsorship from the king to a request that he's already been told no about. And finally, this is the last one that I just love. He says, oh, and can you pay for it? Can I have access to the, the wood storehouses of supplies that I need to rebuild the wall? 
And now remember, this is a wall of a city in which King Artaxerxes conquered. This is something that he already destroyed, and now Nehemiah is saying, can you help me rebuild it? Can you help me establish for my people something that's going to lead to our own independence? Something that's going to lead to pride for us? Something that's going to lead to having a, a sense of security and, a, and a, a establishing of the temple and of the, the city that is God's, that's going to bring glory and honor to him? Kings in that day were not interested in glory going to someone else. They were not interested in making someone else look good. It was interested in making themselves look good. So that's the context in which Nehemiah makes the request before the king. I think it's important for us to realize because I would imagine that Nehemiah was probably very, very, very confident that he knew what it was that God had asked him to do, that he was walking in the conviction of knowing this is God's will, and that's what gave him the confidence to do that. That type of an ask doesn't happen without God's strength. You think about some of the scary things that you've asked your parents for permission for through the years. This isn't even on the same level. <laughs> it's like, hey, uh, can I go to this place? One of, the, one of my stories that I'll share this morning is that when I was 15, 15 and a half, um, I went with a church that we didn't go to, but that was affiliated with the church that we went to on a missions trip to Africa. So on this trip, there were four other women and myself. So I was the only male um, on, a, on a trip to Africa with people that we hadn't even met before. And so I go to ask my parents about it, and I'm like, so I feel like God's asking me to go to Kenya. And my dad, being the very pragmatic person that he is, said, okay, well, tell me about the team. I said, well, it's uh, four women and myself and... Uh, I haven't met him before, but I'm going to, and I think it's going to be really great, and you should let me go. And he said, I think I need to meet these people. <laughs> but I was so nervous about something that was that simple. Can you imagine the feeling of Nehemiah going before the king? The boldness that that takes, the conviction that that takes, the confidence that takes. Imagine what it would be like in our lives if we lived more like that. And that brings us to our next big point this morning. I want to open up our minds and our understanding to dare to believe that God can do anything. To get to the point in our lives where when we have a conviction that we've heard from God, when we've quieted ourselves to listen, when we've had these dreams that God's placed in our hearts, that we dare to believe that God can do anything. That's really easy to say, and I make fun of my dad for doing that to me when I was 15, but I have kids now. I imagine myself when my son comes to me and says, hey, dad, I want to do this awesome thing for God, and I hope that I'll be one when the day comes to encourage that in his heart and not be afraid. Things like moving someplace that we knew nothing about. <laughs> Things like a new job that might be less pay, but allows you to be closer to what it is that God's called you to do. Think about those things in your life that you've written off entirely because they're too big, because they're too difficult, because they're too challenging. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I dare us to dream and imagine what might happen if we believed that God could do anything. 
if we had faith like Nehemiah to know, I know this is an impossible task that I'm asking, but because I have confidence that God's placed it in my heart, I have a conviction to go forward and believe that God can do anything. The second thing I want to talk about this morning is that details matter to God. Details matter to God. I think that that's probably one of the areas of greatest conviction that came across me while I was preparing this sermon this week is details are important. And I think sometimes we think the destination's important, but we forget about the details to get there. I want us to read us a story, actually a, a story about a battle in history that illustrates this point. And it's a story of the French Emperor uh, Napoleon. He led an army of 68, uh, 680,000 men drawn from France and her allies in an invasion of Russia. This was in 1812. For three months, the Russians staged a fighting withdrawal. Finally, Napoleon captured Moscow, but the Russians refused to make peace. Short on supplies, Napoleon retreated. He chose to go back the same way he'd come, but there was no food and no shelter to be found. The bitter winter weather found the French army without adequate clothing and sickness and frostbite and increased casualties caused by Russian raids. By the time Napoleon left Russia, 380,000 of his men were dead, 100,000 were prisoners, and more than 50,000 were unfit for further service. By advancing too far and choosing the wrong route for retreat, Napoleon lost his entire army. Now, big numbers sound really, really, really lofty, and they're kind of difficult to put into perspective. So I did a little bit of research on what I could compare that to. And if you took the population of the city of Grand Prairie and the city of Arlington, it's roughly 680,000 people. So imagine an army of 680,000 people. All of the people that live in Arlington and Grand Prairie are one massive army. And because of a leader's lack of attention to detail, all of Arlington is now killed, and most of Grand Prairie. That kind of puts things into perspective, and I think illustrates the point that details matter. And I would make the case that details matter to God as well. If you look throughout Scripture, there's many instances that you see of details being incredibly important to God. And I'm going to share one of those with you this morning just to illustrate that point. In the Old Testament, when uh, God is giving instructions to the Jews to build the tabernacle in Exodus 25, I want you to hear about some of the detail that God puts into what he wants for his house. And we're going to read about in Exodus 25, starting in verse 31, just the lampstands. So this isn't the structure. This isn't anything that we're going to sit on. This isn't any. This is just the thing that's going to hold the lights on, the lampstand. And this is God's instruction for the lampstand. It says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches from the other side. Three bulls shall be made like almost blossoms on the branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bulls made like blossoms and other branches. That's detail. <laughs> that's a God that says it's not the destination. That's the only thing that's important. It's the details. It's how we get there. It's your obedience to be faithful in the small things that leads to getting to the destination. And I would venture to say that the battle for the big things that God has for us in our lives are won and lost in the details. The battle for our hearts 
are won and lost and what our attitude is like when we wake up at too early in the morning. <laughs> I'm not a morning person, but I'm striving hard to be because so much good stuff happens in the morning and if I can get myself to believe that, hopefully eventually it'll be easier. <laughs> but the battle for our lives, the battle for these big dreams that God's placed in our hearts are won and lost in the details. How do you act when no one's around? And here's the one that my wife will tell you that I am not good at, what I'm striving to be better at. What does your house look like? How many whiskers have I left on the sink for longer than I need to talk about on record? When people open up your fridge, do they see somebody that's ready to entertain, to welcome the stranger, to be able to be hospitable, or do they see that you probably need to throw away that Tupperware container just entirely? Like, there's no cleaning it out. It's past the point where now it just throw it away. And I'm being funny to some extent, but I'm really, I truly believe with conviction that this is something that God's stirring in my heart, is that details matter. Details are important, and they're not glamorous, they're not the things that land you on the front page of Time Magazine as the man of the year, but I believe that those great things that God has for us, how we treat the small things is how we get to that big thing. That dream that he's placed in our hearts, the path to seeing that accomplished is full of lots of little obedient steps where we've surrendered ourselves, we've humbled ourselves, and we've made the hard but good choices along the way to get there. Big battles are won and lost in small details. Looking at scripture too, one of the stories that I love that illustrate this point is actually one that we've talked about recently here at Vertical is that Moses striking and speaking to the rock is an excellent illustration of details mattering to God. And what I think is so critical about it, too, is that it's not just how we do it, but it's how did God say to do it? It's not just, I know this worked then, but what God's saying to you now? And the thing that is the assumption beyond that is that we are quieting ourselves enough to listen to know what God's saying in the first place. Amen. Moses goes from leading the people from captivity to the promised land and his journey stopped short because he didn't pay attention to the details. He is one of the greatest leaders in the Bible. The stories and the, the principles that we can draw from the life of Moses are incredible. But he doesn't lead the people into the promised land because he didn't pay attention to the details. Because he allowed his frustration to become, to, to boil over. Details matter to God. Lastly, there are some 400 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. 400. Do you think that we serve a God who cares about details when he's recorded 400 different promises about who Jesus is and put them in the scriptures? Like I talked about, this is the biggest thing that I feel that God is challenging me on through this sermon is that if Nehemiah doesn't ask for those letters, he may have never made it back to to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall in the first place. If he hadn't asked for the resources, he could have made it back and then, okay, now what? Rebuilding a wall from rubble probably is not going to be very strong. Rebuilding a wall from the storehouses of one of the greatest rulers in the history of the world, probably going to be a little bit stronger. 
Details matter. I think about oftentimes throughout my life and as I've, I've grown and, and matured in God and, and I think what's not oftentimes talked about is that the greatest commandment, which we all know, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. I think that mind piece is oftentimes left out. I think that we oftentimes get filled with passion and we get filled with maybe a dream that God's placed in our hearts for what it is that he wants us to do, but we think, if we're not careful, that we can check out our minds in the process. We think that if we're not careful that things like that are just going to happen automatically. I don't know about you, but for my life, all of the things that we've seen that have been growth, that have been greater intimacy with God, that have been greater realization of his dreams for us, that have been greater experiences of his kingdom, have not ever once happened by accident. Never. It doesn't happen. Greater intimacy with God and greater experience of his kingdom happen on purpose. They happen when we choose to engage our minds. We choose to make the difficult choices. We choose to have thoughts that are his thoughts and not our thoughts. Loving God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind is critical for seeing those big dreams happen. And finally, the the point that I want to emphasize last today is that telling your story matters. Telling your story matters. Turning back to Nehemiah, we're going to pick up Nehemiah in chapter 2 and then in verse 17. So by verse 17, Nehemiah has already made his way back to Jerusalem, and he's gone out and he's toured the walls, and he's coming up with his plan, and he's going back to talk to the leaders. And in verse 17, it says, Then I said to them, You will see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. And come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken. So they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. Friends, I would offer to us this morning that hearing the word of God is what compels us to listen But hearing stories is what compels us to action. Hearing the word of God is what compels us that this is something that I should listen to. But hearing stories of people that are afflicted, hearing stories of what is happening in our world, hearing stories of the hand of God on the lives of men is what compels us to action. I think one of the greatest illustrations that probably many of us have seen is I think at every single Christian concert, there ever is, which I, I'm not saying this is a bad thing at all, it's actually a really good thing. Compassion is there. Compassion International is at these concerts because what are they trying to do? They're trying to reveal to you in an environment which you're already listening to the heart and spirit of God, the need that's in our world. How much easier is it for you to be able to be compelled to give, to listen to God saying that this is something you should support when we're already engaged to begin with? We're compelled to listen because of the message, but we're compelled to do something because of the story. Nehemiah had the right message, but when he told them of what God had done, the scripture says, because of the hand of God on his life, they picked up their hammers, they picked up their supplies, and they said, yes, let's rebuild. I think that is one of the biggest things that's missing in our greater U.S. church today is that we don't do a good job of telling our stories. We don't do a good job of saying, this is what God's doing in my life. 
We think that it's insignificant. We think that it's not important. We think that he's doing way cooler stuff other places. We use all of these different things to discredit, but what we need to do is do a better job of telling the stories of what God's doing in our lives. We listen because of the word. We filter through the word. Oftentimes we're compelled to action by the Holy Spirit and by listening to what God's doing in other people's lives. Think about the last time that you stepped out of your comfort zone. Think about the last time that you did something for someone else that had nothing to do with you. Think about the last time that God did something amazing in your life. And tell me, number one, was it compelled by a story? And number two, do you have a story to tell because of it? And if you've answered yes to either one of those, other people need to know. Other people need to know. One of my favorite stories on moving from California to Texas is a time where we were driving on the way home, and I can tell you the cross streets in California that we were driving on when this happened, but we're driving home, and my, my son, who's five now, he would have been three-ish at the time, said, Dad, why, why are we moving to Texas? I'm like, oh, no, how do I come up with something on the fly? <laughs> why are we moving to Texas, God? I was, why are we moving to Texas, Dad? He's like, oh, I know. I'm like, oh dear, what's he going to say? And what he said has stuck with me to this day and it's a story that I need to tell. He said, oh, I know, we're doing it because God said to, right? And after I tried to pull over to the curbs, I didn't crash the car because I couldn't see anything. (laughs) He said, you're right, son. That's why we're doing it, because God said so. All of us, Every person in this room has a story that's in your heart that needs to come out of your mouth to someone else. All of us have lives that have been changed because of the gospel. All of us have times where we've seen God do things that were impossible. We've seen his reckless love break down walls. We've seen it tear down lies that we believed for way too long. Are we telling people about it? Are we sharing that with the people in our spheres of influence? Because again, I would, I would offer to you this morning that you should listen to a person because of the message, but it's their story that's going to compel you to do something about it. Nehemiah could have had all the opportunity. He could have had all the resource. He could have had all of the talent. He could have had all of the things that he needed to rebuild that wall. But if he can't tell a compelling story to get the people there to pick up hammers and join him on the wall, then it's all for naught. Stories of what God's done in your life are important. They're for a reason. As we look through the Old Testament, whenever God did something really cool in their, in their journey from captivity to the promised land, what did they do? They built some sort of a memorial to be able to look back on and say, remember what God did. If he did it then, he can do it again. Remember what God did. If he did it then, he can do it again. We see in Hebrews that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God that parted a Red Sea is the same God that wants to part that sea that's in front of you today. That thing in your life that seems like it's immovable, that it seems like it's a lost cause, that seems like there's nothing that can change it, the same God that did it then can do it again today. And God will bring people into your life to remind you of that, and they can say, remember when, 
that can say, when I was up against this circumstance, this is what God did. In closing, there's a couple of questions that I want us to ponder this morning. And the questions are going to be on the screen. But what dreams have you dismissed because you thought they were impossible? What thing has God placed on your heart that you thought, wow, this is amazing. This is not a man dream. This is a God dream. This is not something that makes me have more power and prominence. This is something that brings greater intimacy between me and God and greater impact for his kingdom. What dreams like that have you dismissed because you thought they were impossible? Or take that even a step further, are you still dreaming? Are you still living life believing that God can do anything? See, sometimes in my own life, I get caught that what I have is, is what there is, and, and there's no room for God to do incredible things because I just, I'm content. What I've, what I've, I, just, I stay content with what I have. And what I'm challenging myself and all of us to this morning is to not be content. What I'm challenging us to this morning is to believe that God can do anything and to open ourselves up to hear those dreams that are from his heart that can change the world. The second one, and this is the biggest one for me that I'm struggling with, is where have you forgotten to do all for the glory of God? The Bible talks about whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all as an act of worship to God. Clean my sink to the glory of God. Make sure that my dirty clothes make it in the hamper instead of next to the hamper to the glory of God. Details matter. The last thing that I would want is to know what it is that God wants me to do, have a conviction about that, march forward and miss it because I wasn't prepared. And miss it because I didn't think that details weren't important. Where have you forgotten to do all for the glory of God? And finally and lastly, what stories have you been too timid to share or thought your story was insignificant? Friends, I want to tell us this morning, there is not a single story here that is insignificant to God. Your story matters. The work that God's done in your heart, he hasn't done in a single other person in the world. We've got to become better at telling those stories. Because I would even push it as far as to say that there are lives that hang in the balance. There are people that don't know Jesus yet that if you don't tell your story, might not hear. There are people that don't know Jesus that if you aren't telling about the good things that he's done in your life, well, what's the point? Is, is, is Christianity just church on Sunday or is it more than that? Our stories are what proclaim that to a world that thinks it's just about this. We know that, but they don't. And it's up to us to tell them that. This morning, I would ask you to pick one of those questions and think about what it is that the Spirit of God might be whispering to your heart today. Have you given up on dreams because, well, maybe it's just dreaming's too big and our thinking is too small? Have we given up on dreams because we don't think that it really is possible anymore? Are you like me and the big idea is great, but it's the details that matter. 
It's the details that we need to come back to and focus on and remember that God cares just as much about the journey as he does about the destination. I know we've talked about it before, but it did not take the amount of time that it took the people of Israel to go from Egypt to the promised land. That journey should not have taken that long, but the journey is what God needed to do to get their hearts ready to be in the promised land. The journey matters to God. The destination's important, but so is the journey. And lastly, what stories have you been too timid to share or thought that your story was insignificant? My prayer for all of us is that we would be compelled to believe that God can do anything, that we would have a conviction to go forward with what we've determined is his will for us with a boldness that we haven't even thought of before, that those dreams that we thought were too big, we realize now are too small, that those things that God has for us to do aren't limited by us, but are made possible because of the God that we serve. Remember, Nehemiah goes before a king where he's not allowed to show his own emotion, and he asked for 12 years paid time off. He asked for the king to finance the journey of making someone else look good. And he does all of it because of the conviction that he has, because he's heard from the heart of God and he's done that. That's what I want for my life. I want my life to be full of discipline, to be able to hear from God, to be able to listen to his heart and his dreams for my life and have a conviction to go forward. Remember what we talked about. We can't do that alone. So I challenge all of us this morning, will you do that with me? Will you be one that not just reads the word, but hears what it is that God's saying to your heart and boldly marches forward? Not blindly with just our emotions, but with our whole selves, with our heart, soul, and mind. And may we be a people that sees God do incredible things and are the first to share the story so that all may hear. Would you bow your heads? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the God of the impossible. Lord, I thank you that your dreams for us are not so small that we can't understand them. But God, that what you want for us is for us to be a people that honor you, that see mountains moved, that see hearts changed, that see lives changed, and that give you the glory and are the first to tell the story. Lord, I pray that you might encourage hearts in this place this morning that may have thought before that their story was insignificant, but God, may you show them that beyond being insignificant, it's critical to the mission of what you want to do in the world. God, I pray that you would fill us with a boldness and a conviction to be your messengers to the world. Lord, I pray that you would fill us again with a boldness to believe in the dreams that you've placed in our hearts, to believe that nothing is impossible to you and have that kind of a conviction going forward. God, may we be Nehemiahs in our world. May we believe and act like nothing's impossible. And may you stir in us a desire to see you do that, to do the impossible, to change the lives that we thought could never change, to provide a way in the circumstances we thought were impossible. Lord, may we as a church family do that together. And may we become masters at telling your story so the world may know. In Jesus' name, amen.
I've invited a couple of ministry leaders to come forward this time uh, during our response time if you'd like to have someone pray with you. Um, you can always pray up here. You can pray in your seats. But I would encourage you, don't leave this time without hearing from the heart of God for you. Because that's the whole crux of the message, right? It's not what I'm saying. It's not what you're hearing. It's, it's what is God saying to your heart? What is God speaking to you? Where is he giving you courage that you didn't have before? Where is he giving you conviction that you didn't have before? If you'd like someone to pray with you about that, please come forward during this time. I really hope you enjoyed today's broadcast. I hope it has inspired you to lift him up and live him out. If you'd like to know more about Vertical Church, check us out online at verticalchurchovilla.com. We'll see you next time.